Wessex LNCs supporting you and your practice. Hello and welcome to another LMC podcast, Wessex LMCs. My name is Ed Rendell. I'm a medical director at Wessex LMCs and we're here today to talk about egg allergy. I'm here and joined by uh, our nurse advisor, Zoe Tobin. Um, uh, it's good to have you with us, Zoe. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, and also uh, Cherry Alviani, who's a paediatric allergy registrar at University Southampton Hospital, um, but also a co-chair of Wessex Allergy Network. Thanks, uh, Cherry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, topic. Uh, we, we sort of got myself as a GP and Zoe as a, uh, a nurse uh, just to sort of try and add a, a bit of clinical side to it. But, um, Cherry, what, what's the, the reason you were keen to speak to us today? Um, so the reason I've come up on the podcast today is really to um, highlight some new guidance that has been uh, published in the past year regionally um, on the management of egg allergy in children. Um, and this has slightly changed the way um, that egg allergies managed with a bit more of a focus on, in mild cases, um, patients just being managed within primary care, but um, as part of the guidance, we've also produced various resources for parents um, to kind of help them um, learn more about egg allergy, but also reintroduce egg into their child's diet. Um, so really part of it is to highlight that there is this new guidance um, out there, which should cover kind of any queries or questions about egg allergy. Um, but I'm also here to kind of answer any questions you may have about egg allergy. Um, and I know that one thing we are going to talk on sort of touch on later on is also going to be vaccinating children with egg allergy because that often comes up as a query yes and i think asking around the office that was the the top thing to ask you so we'll definitely yeah. ask around the practicality <laughs> of, of that um uh, yeah i'm i'm grateful for this because i think um i, I was going to ask you first does my experience echo other clinicians you come across i, I don't think i've had i did a pediatric sho rotation i have some experience here but i don't feel super confident in this area is that um yeah, have you had that experience before with general practitioners not not really having uh, this on their um, their training programs, and it's an area that you know these guidelines are needed for. Yes, I think paediatric allergy in general, um, even when you do rotations in paediatrics as an SHO, is not something you tend to come across very much. It's very. Nope outpatient management base so unless you do a specific allergy post um you don't have much experience in it so um the idea of developing guidances is to help um improve management of these various pediatric allergic conditions but also knowledge at both primary and secondary care level brilliant and then again asking around the office earlier so myself and another gp we were just discussing is egg allergy lifelong generally no um, okay. So egg allergy is common. So about 2% of children will have some form of egg allergy. So it's one of the commonest Ig mediated food allergies. Um, but on the whole, if you're going to have an Ig mediated food allergy, egg allergy is probably one you want because actually the course of it tends to be quite benign and the vast majority of children outgrow it. About a third will outgrow it before they start school. About another third will probably outgrow by the time they hit secondary school. Um, and then by about the time you're 16 years of age, about 70 odd um, percent will have outgrown it. Brilliant. And then how can you tell if you've outgrown it? And can you do anything to speed that up or make it happen more quickly? 
So ultimately, depending sort of where you are in terms of when you're first diagnosed or how severe you are, um, you'll know when you're outgrown it when you can introduce egg into your diet. Um, so and it usually goes through stages where people initially tolerate what we call baked egg, which is like egg in a cake or in a scotch pancake. Then you move on to like well-cooked egg, like a boiled egg or fried egg. Um, and then finally you go on to kind of your more raw type of egg, which for children often is like things like cake batter. Um how you can speed it up there's a little bit of evidence that if you can introduce egg in the sort of well-cooked forms or like the baked form into your diet early on um, and keep it in your diet regularly that can speed up it can promote the development of tolerance to egg Um, and that's one of the things that the guidance focuses on is trying to get these families where the child only has a mild egg allergy to get kind of cake into their diet early on uh, and keep it in um, so as to help promote the early introduction of, of all egg, kind of strict, strict avoidance for many years is probably one of the worst things you can do unless you have a severe egg allergy. And I think that's a sort of shift I've sort of seen from yeah. my career, that slightly different approach. Zoe, over to you. Yeah, Terry, yeah, I was just wondering, that's really interesting. Is, is there a, a sort of familial link with family history? Um, around sort of egg allergy because I know when parents um, well, that's one of the things when parents bring children for vaccination and that the child themselves hasn't got a confirmed allergy to certain things but the, pa- the parent be really panicked because obviously they perhaps have um, an allergy yeah um, so in some um, allergic conditions generally there is so generally having any first degree relative with and that atopic condition is going to increase your risk of having one of the four kind of major childhood atopic conditions. Having two parents is going to push that up to 70%. So if you've got a parent with food allergies, you are at higher risk than a child who doesn't have a parent with food allergies of having food allergies. But there isn't a strong link. So just because your parent has an egg allergy or even a sibling has an egg allergy, um, it's not in itself a reason for, for example, screening that child for an egg allergy. And um, one thing that is a strong risk factor for egg allergy is severe infantile eczema. So those are the children who are at high risk of developing an egg allergy. So severe eczema within the first few months of life um, is something that puts you at quite high risk of going on to develop an egg allergy. Perfect. Thank you. And so it's probably you're probably better place than me to ask the question around vaccines what were you keen to find out on this side what, what commonly comes up as a, a question absolutely yeah so um a lot of it is obviously um reassuring parents and um obviously they do a lot of reading and particularly if they know their child has got an ag allergy of some form um and it's just what advice would you give like um us nurses or clinicians if we are uh, faced with a, a child with an egg allergy um, in terms of providing what vaccinations, um, you know, obviously we've got the MMR and, and the, the flu, the inactivated flu and also the nasal flu vaccination. Yeah. Um, what what kind of um, advice and support would you be able to give us to be able to, to um, almost give the parents the reassurance yeah. that they need? Um, so, what, so one thing I think is just is knowledge. So that actually... MMR is safe to give to egg allergic children um, so that they can have. And flu, the flu vaccine is also, 
you know, on the whole, completely safe. Um, intranasal flu, the only children that ought, need to be referred on for intranasal flu are the children whose egg allergy is so severe that they have had anaphylaxis that has put them in intensive care. And that group of children is vanishingly small because actually on the whole, egg allergy tends to be on the milder spectrum. So there's going to be very, very, very few children that really need referring in. So a lot of it is parental reassurance that actually it is safe. And actually, even the children that meet the criteria for referring, they kind of just get vaccinated in hospital from a safety point of view. We don't do any testing or anything on them. We just do it in a slightly more protected environment because often the anxiety levels there are very high. Um, so partly it is just reassurance of parents that it is safe. Um, the Green Book also always provides sort of updated guidances on the levels of ovalbumin in, for example, the IM flu vaccine. And generally they are always very, very low um, and they can be used sort of safely in primary care. Um, so it can always be sort of directing parents to the fact that there is also national guidance. Um, and also I think reassuring them that Sometimes even if they are anxious, that actually they're unlikely to be able to get that immunisation in any other setting um, because, of, because of the guidance. The only vaccine that is a contraindication and is probably worth letting parents know if this comes up is yellow fever. Um, and that is one that normally needs to be administered in hospital to an allergic patient, often with testing um, beforehand. So not usually relevant when the child is small, but as they get older, if they're thinking of doing sort of, sort of some more exotic travel um, and yellow, they, you know, if they need to go somewhere where they need yellow fever vaccination and the child has an egg allergy, they need an early referral to a tertiary centre to get that addressed. Brilliant. That's really helpful. Sort of what's not, what is usually OK. And yeah, yeah. that's uh, perfect. What's it, what's it like? Um, what's it like being a parent of a child with someone with egg allergy? What, what's your perception of that? Having spoken to a number of them? I think it's really very it, yeah, depends. Like practically, like, what's it like? How's it, you know, is it really it must be quite so worrying it, and frustrating in terms of trying to secure that? I think it always as with all sort of food allergies, um, parental anxiety levels can massively vary. Um, I think some parents manage it very effectively, and actually some parents find avoidance of egg if their child only has an egg allergy, um, not too onerous, um, particularly if their child can eat baked eggs so they can have cakes um then actually egg as sort of egg in itself is often a relatively obvious ingredient um and it's one of the 14 ingredients that needs to be highlighted in bold on um, food packaging so in isolation it is not often too onerous a food to avoid i think the other thing that we're seeing a lot these days is with the advent of um, a lot more vegan food there often are significantly more options than they used to be so it used to be maybe quite difficult for in children with egg allergy who are avoiding all forms of egg to access cakes but kind of vegan cakes have become much more popular much easier to find um so these days it is much easier to manage having a child with an egg allergy brilliant Thank you. It's been really, yeah, um, as you say, it's, it's uh, unknown unknowns and sort of just having a bit more confidence in this area is really helpful. Um, practical stuff. Um, we caught each other just before this, just a, a initial first chance. Um, I think you were saying some of the guidance is based around traffic lights. Yes. I think that's sort of helpful. I think we've seen Healthier Together, the sort of more general paediatric um, website, and that, that model seems to work. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? And then just practicalities, like how do people find the guidance and, yes. uh, and access it? 
Yeah. So the um, primary care guidance is based on a traffic light system. The idea is, is that if children fall into the green category, which is the mild egg allergy category, and that's young children who have reacted to things like a scrambled egg with relatively mild reactions. So some hives, some redness, some swelling, maybe a vomit. Um, who are otherwise well without very severe eczema, without severe asthma, um, can be managed within primary care. Um, and the guidance highlights what they need. So they need a BSACI allergy action plan, and there's a link to those. And then parents are, we suggest parents are given an information sheet on egg allergy, which again is linked, um, an introduction, sort of an information sheet on how to introduce Introduce egg into their child's diet in stages at home, which talks them through, you know, the practicalities, um, and then also some generic guidance on weaning children with egg allergy. Because one thing that we do know that egg allergy is linked to is peanut allergy, and again, we know that early introduction of peanut is beneficial. So any young child sort of that presents with an egg allergy that hasn't had peanut introduced um, in that green category, they, you know, it should be strongly advised for parents to get on and introduce that too. Um, and then the guidance goes on to split children into a sort of a, a moderate category where actually essentially they don't meet green criteria. And these are children that just need to avoid egg and get referred to secondary care for ongoing management. Um, and then it highlights the red group. And these are children where you're suspicious that they've had anaphylaxis at their first encounter with egg, which is unusual, but does happen. Um, and these children get managed similarly to the moderate category. But the main thing is, is they need um, adrenaline auto injectors prescribing um, and a different allergy action plan. And the guidance sort of also has information on doses and links to the appropriate um, action plans. Brilliant. Fantastic. Um, and is it all set to go? Is it on a website that can be accessed? Is it on? Yes. So it can all be accessed under Healthier Together. Um, oh, great. So Fantastic. Uh, yeah, so it's it's all there. So under the the Wessex um, Healthier Together tab in the professionals resources for primary care, under the paediatric ones where you find things like your constipation, your limping child, um, yep. it's under egg allergy um, and it has the flow chart. And then there's links um, to the different documents, which are also hosted on Healthy Together. So, again, parents can just be sent the text message link to the information sheet and the food introduction guidance. Brilliant. Um, I have no idea if this is possible. We will try and put the web link with this podcast if we can. If we can't, then you've just heard exactly where it is, and I'm sure we'll be able to find it. Zoe, anything else from yourself? No, I think, you've, I think we've covered everything. Um, thank Brilliant. you so much, Jerry. Been thank a really interesting chat. Podcast. Was there anything else you needed to say, Jerry? Or is that okay for today? No, I think um, we've we've covered most things, and hopefully the guidance is um, easy to access and easy to read, but relatively formative um so should be relatively easy to follow that was the aim to not obviously add extra mm. um onus on um primary care so we've tried to keep it succinct yep perfect no it's, it's, it's you know it feels helpful to know there's a place i can go to look to find a bit more information and sort of understand if i can manage this more myself or need to refer so uh perfect thank you very and much the other thing i would just say is that the the parent information sheet has quite uh, addresses quite a lot of the things including things we've spoken about today mm. um and has also a nice list on it of what contains egg because sometimes unusual foods do that people don't realize like for example corn mints um so again it's it's all there um and will there are a lot of their, the questions that they may have are also addressed by the leaflet Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Cherry. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, we'll end it there. But there's some more um, podca podcast episodes on the way. I think I've got a couple of uh, 
dates in my diary. So we'll see where the next topic takes us. And thank you very much for today. Thank you. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.